I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it seems to me that uh, uh, those who are the happiest are those who aren't chasing it. You ever notice that? That uh, those who chase happiness are the ones who never catch it, but those who are content, those who are um, resting in Christ and what he has supplied are the ones who seem to be the most happy. Psalm 119 begins by revealing the path of true and deep and lasting happiness. Psalm 119 is, I think, a divine encouragement to chase God and find happiness in Him. As John Piper wrote in his great book, Desiring God, we don't pursue happiness enough. It's not that pursuing happiness is wrong, it's we're pursuing happiness in the wrong ways and are not applying enough effort to find and experience happiness. Piper says that we, we become content with low levels of earthly happiness when in fact we have been created with an infinite capacity for happiness and have an infinite source of happiness in God himself. So if you have your, your Bibles open to Psalm 119, um, I want you to look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. The word blessed here, of course, is, uh, could be translated happy. And it, it's an accurate translation to translate this happy. Uh, but I, I decided to preach Psalm 119 uh, when, I, when I began thinking about what to preach next. I, I, I came to Psalm 119 because I wanted everybody at Sun Valley to be truly happy and fulfilled. And this chapter, more than I think most others in Scripture, tell us that happiness comes from being completely in love with God. That's the source of happiness. That's where we're going to find it. A.W. Tozer wrote uh, a prayer that relates to this first stanza. He, he said this, um, well, I'll read his prayer later, but this is something he said leading up to this prayer. He said, refuse to be average. Let your heart soar as high as it will. And I think that a soaring heart is a happy heart. Um, I don't want Sun Valley Church to be full of average Christians um, oh, where do you go to church? Well, I'll go to church where the average Christians go. I'd rather not be that your sale point. Um, I, I want you to know what it means to be exceedingly happy. I want to build a church full of ambassadors of happiness. And I'm concerned with those who come to church week in and week out and never seem to be truly happy, never seem to be content, never seem to be fulfilled concerns me as a pastor, and I'm interested in truly encouraging you to pursue your joy, your happiness, your fulfillment in Christ. And I think Psalm 119 is a good guide for that. One of my responsibilities as a shepherd uh, of people is to uh, alert you to false promises that don't deliver. I want to point people towards God and, and what he says will work and to steer you away from things in this world that don't work. Uh, today, if, I'm sure you all remember this, but today marks 
a year since we began the study of Psalm 119. Um, I've, I've prayed that those of you who've been here throughout this um, would have more true and lasting happiness and joy um, because of this psalm. I've prayed that you would all see the vanity of believing the, the promises from the world and instead believe the promises from God. Um, so what I want to do today is I'd like to take some time to review where we've been and remind you of the focus of this amazing psalm, this, this chapter in the book of Psalms. So let's look, if you would, uh, at this uh, psalm up to verse 56 where we've completed. Psalm 119 has 22 stanzas, if you remember, and these stanzas correspond to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So every stanza is named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, for example, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first stanza is named Aleph. Every sentence in the Hebrew Bible in that first stanza begins with the letter Aleph. And in the second stanza, every letter or every sentence in that second stanza begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Beit, and on through the Hebrew alphabet. So each stanza is named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet so that the people who were reading it could remember it and the contents thereof. So these, this, this is, is an acrostic uh, chapter, um, and it, it has the letters of the Hebrew alphabet pointing the way. So there's 176 verses here because each stanza is made up of eight verses. And these verses correspond back to the main theme of the uh, entire chapter, which is the centrality of the Word of God in the life of the believer. So if you're a believer, this chapter is important to you because it explains to you how the Word of God works in your everyday life. And each, each of these stanzas uh, has a supporting sub-theme that emphasizes that importance in our lives. There, there's also, if you remember, eight synonyms or nine synonyms for the Word of God, and they come across like this, precepts, promise, and so forth. So when you, you come across, uh, blessed are those who, who walk in the law of the Lord, that, that's a, a synonym for the Word of God, the law of the Lord. So there's eight or nine of those that the, that the author substitutes and rotates through to emphasize different nuances of the value of the Word of God. So let's look at the first stanza here, uh, verses 1 through 8. And I've titled each of these stanzas, and there's a blank in your bulletin that you can fill them out so that you can maybe remember a little bit also. So this first stanza, the Aleph stanza, I've titled Happiness in God. Happiness in God. And the main idea and central focus of Psalm 119 is introduced right here in this first stanza. How to find happiness in God. It begins by stating that happiness comes to those who know and obey God's word. Are you one of those people? If not, that explains why you're lacking in happiness. If you're always searching for something to make you happy or fulfill you, but aren't in the word of God, that'll never take place, according to scripture. And so this, this first stanza, highlighted by verse 2 and 5, point us in that direction. Verse 2 Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, testimonies, a synonym for the word of God. Those of you who keep God's testimonies and who seek him with their whole heart are those who will be blessed, those who will be happy. And then verse 5 is a, is, a, is a yearning, a prayer from the psalmist. Oh, that my ways would be fast, steadfast in keeping your statutes. 
That's what I want. I want to be happy. I want to be blessed. And so God, help me keep your statutes. Help me keep your commandments. You know, lasting joy, peace, and contentment and happiness is for those who pursue holiness. Um, those whose, walk, whose way is blameless, verse 1. Um, it's, it's not those who pursue uh, the benefits of selfishness. That's not who happiness comes to. It's those who follow God's agenda, not, not those who follow their own agenda. And growing up in the society we have, this seems a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because we are told, because of where we've grown up, that if we're ever going to be happy, we have to get ahead and stay ahead. Ever heard that concept? If we're going to, to, to be happy, we have to protect and prioritize ourselves. In order to be truly happy, the world tells us, you must have, and to have, you must get, and to get, you must put yourself first. Get all you can, can't only get, and sit on that lid, don't let anybody in, and steal your stuff. And I, I want to make sure you know that it's not wrong to have. It's just wrong to have for the purpose of self. Have is a great thing. You know, have is how you can meet other people's needs. But as Christians, we know that the world has never been a very good um, promiser of happiness. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of promises come from the world about how you and I can be happy and fulfilled. Adver that's what advertising is all about. Uh, they, they say if you, you know, will just buy this car, you just might come across a woman who looks like this, right? Or drink this beer or whatever. You know, you'll, you'll have this kind of lifestyle if you'll just, you know, use this toothpaste. Um, the, the, the world is constantly throwing promises at us about how to be happy. Um, but we've seen and personally experienced the opposite result of selfish living. We've, we've experienced the emptiness of living for ourselves and ignoring the needs of those around us. You see, God knows that we all desire to be happy because he created us with this innate desire, God-given desire to be happy. Um, he has also designed us to experience in fulfillment and, and have happiness by his design and his way, his path, not in any other way. The rest of this psalm, Psalm 119, lays out, I think, very succinctly, the path to this happiness. How is it you're going to get there and experience it for yourself? Each stanza of these 22 stanza uh, describes some aspect of the pursuit of God which leads to happiness. But it all begins right here in the Aleph stanza. A.W. Tozer, and here's that prayer I was mentioning to you, he, he he, this prayer reflects the heart of the stanza, verses 1 through 8. He said, O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. How can that be? God, in God's goodness, satisfies us, but makes us want more. I am um, painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered for so long. 
This is the heart of Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. And it is a wonderful introduction to the rest of the psalm. You want that fulfillment? You want that joy? You want that passion for God? Then this is where you must begin, right here, pursuing him with all your heart. Now we get to the second stanza, verses 9 through 16. I've titled this stanza, Walking with God. The first stanza is focused on the pursuit of happiness, and the second stanza is focused on the pursuit of holiness. In order to experience happiness, we must pursue holiness. If we're going to pursue happiness the way God directs, then it's going to lead up with that pursuit of and practice of holiness. So what is the practice of holiness? How do we practice being holy? This stanza tells us, verses 9 through 16, there's four things, if you remember. Verse 11 says we need to store up the word of God in our heart. We need to memorize it. We need to fill our minds, our, our own personal reservoir with the word of God. Store it up. Secondly, in verse 13, speak it out. When you have opportunity, when you come across someone who is in need or someone who needs encouragement of some kind, or you yourself need it, speak out the word of God. That reservoir that's full, start using it. And then verse 14, delight in. I'm talking about how do you practice holiness? You store up the word of God, you speak out the word of God, and you delight in the word of God. And if you delight in something, you'll spend time doing it. Verse 15 is the next way to practice holiness, and that is meditate on it. And I would say one of the ways that you delight in the word of God is by meditating on it. So to summarize the second stanza, we could say, in order to be holy, which leads to happiness, we must learn God's word and live by it. Are you doing that in your personal experience with God, in your daily walk with Christ? Are you learning more of God's word and are you living by what you learn? This is the path to happiness, God's path to happiness. Then we come to the next two stanzas. I group these two stanzas together the Gimel stanza and Dallas stanza, verses 17 through 32. The first stanza promises happiness to those who pursue holiness. The second stanza explains how to pursue holiness, store up, speak out, meditate on, delight in. The first two stanzas identify the importance of making our pursuit of God a wholehearted pursuit, verse 5, a focused pursuit, not just something we do on Sunday morning, no, but a lifelong, daily, hourly pursuit of God. Now here in stanzas three and four, the author describes the difficulties that you can expect if you intend to pursue holiness like this. If you intend to make Christ your priority, if you intend to fill your heart and life with the word of God, you're going to encounter opposition, maybe within your own family. It's in these stanzas, though, that we, we see the challenges that are facing those who pursue Christ, it's also here where we see the promises to those who will do so. It's here in verse 19 that we get the idea of what it means to be a sojourner, of viewing this life as temporary, as these things, as gifts given by God to use for the pursuit of him and the glory of, of his name. But in verse 19 we read, I am a sojourner on the earth, hide not your commandments from me. 
he understood that this was just a passing experience, this life. And he wanted to make the most of it for the glory of God and for his own joy. And he knew that the only way to do that was to abide by the commandments, to follow what the Lord had said. And I, I combine these two stanzas, as I said, uh, because of the similarity of their focus. These two stanzas, um, the Gimel stanza and the Dallas stanza, 17 through 32, whet our appetite a little just to help us inch closer to that scary place of radical commitment to Christ. You know, it's, it's wonderful to have that experience, that, that Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott type of experience, that radical commitment. Uh, it creates a, a, a Christian life that's exciting. Um, too many of us live boring Christian lives, and I think these two stanzas encourage us to get a little more risky because this is what we've been called to. We've been called to live as sojourners. We've been called to not view this world as our home, but just as a passing reality. But we will face opposition if we decide to live this way. But these stanzas, these two, teach us that with opposition is reward. God, God rewards those who seek him. In verses 17 through 32, we see some risks, some sorrows, some, some uh, scorn and contempt that come our way for following Jesus. Um, we can expect those things. But in that experience, we, we learn to depend on God. Living the radical Christian life helps us experience some exciting Christian uh, things and, and, and see God answer prayer and, and, and fill our hearts with joy, even in the midst of opposition. And th this is unnatural. To, to the natural person, opposition creates sadness and sorrow and, and, and withdrawing. But to the one who is, who's made the pursuit of God their life's goal, that kind of reaction to a person's godly pursuit actually stirs them on to more, to experiencing more of God's provision in the Christian life. God wants us to experience maximum Christianity, maximum delight, and maximum God. And in order to do that, we need to walk in the path that he has laid out for us. We need to consider risking a little more than we are currently risking because of the cause of Christ. We need to lean a little harder, depend a little more, believe what he says. And these two stanzas direct us in that way. If you'll notice in verse 30, the author encourages us to choose this way of faithfulness. And then he says, and if you're going to choose this way of faithfulness, verse 31, he says, you're going to have to cling to the word. And then he says in verse 32, which is one of my favorite verses in this chapter, I will run in this path that you sign out. I will, I will do that, God, if you just give me an enlarged heart. What a wonderful, wonderful verse. Um, to know that, that God has set us free to live for him and to love him and to follow him and he will strengthen us for the task. I will run in this path, God, if you'll just give me the ability to do it. Give me this enlarged heart. We know that all these things, all these desires, all these plans of ours to live a godly life, to pursue holiness, is dependent upon God's um, strength to do so. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to do them. 
And in order to do these things, to live this, this risky um, opposition path, we're going to need to be educated. You don't want to run out there blind. You don't want to run out there unprepared. And so in the next stanza, verses 33 through 40, the hey stanza, he talks about being educated by God, a divine education. And I've, I've titled this stanza, Learning from God. So in verse 32, the author acknowledges his need for an enlarged heart um, to fulfill God's will in his life. And then he begins the next stanza in the hey stanza um, to say, okay, I, I want to do this. I want to run in this path, but God, I need your instruction to do so. Please come alongside and teach me. So hey, if you'll see there in verse 33 through 40, hey is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this letter is used in the Hebrew language at the beginning of verbs to make them causative. Okay, and what that means is simply this. In English, we might translate the sentences that we see in these uh, eight verses like this. Cause me to learn. God, it's a prayer. Cause me to understand. Cause me to walk. And so each of these sentences starts with the letter he in the Hebrew language. And it's a, a prayer uh, for God to do the initiating work so that we can accomplish these things. So he's seeking instruction. He's seeking guidance. He's seeking education, a divine education. And he knows that God must be active in his learning if it's going to accomplish its goal. In verse 34, you notice that, uh, that God wants our minds to grow in understanding. That, that's the, 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 the place that education begins in, in transforming the mind like we read this morning in, in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the more, the more we know of God and his word the more willing we will be to obey it. Our minds receive some divine education and because of that we begin to follow God more closely. And after our minds have been educated, or while our minds have been educated, God begins to work on our feet. Look at verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea of God taking our hand, the shepherd taking our hand and guiding us along this path. This is the way you should walk, right here, on this way. The path that the Holy Spirit enlightens and, and guides us on is, is a well-trodden path that previous sojourners before us have, have walked. That's why there's a path there. We can, others have walked it. It's worn, well-trodden. It's kind of the concept of Hebrews 12, you know, being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who have walked this path before us. That's what the idea here in verse 35. Then we come to verse 36, and the Holy Spirit's focus of education is our affections. He, he tries to uh, reconfigure our affections. What is it that that interests you? What, what, what makes you tick? Well, the Holy Spirit desires to have the Word of God and the presence of God in your life make you tick. And so he educates your affections. He, he draws you in. He, he, he helps you see the, the value of God and the value of following him and the importance of holiness. It's, it's, a, it's a reconfiguring of your affections. Once you've been given a new heart, the education begins, and part of that education 
is reconfiguring your affections so that you're more excited about the things of God than the things of the world. That you begin to be more interested in spending time with God and his word and his people than what the world might offer as an alternative. After God has worked on our minds and our feet and our affections, notice that he applies his attention to our eyes. He says here on verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Why does he pray that? Because our eyes are accustomed to looking at worthless things. That's why we're easily drawn away by worthless things. If it's shiny, we look at it. And so the author knows that divine education includes helping our attention be more focused on Christ instead of the world. So we move from the he stanza of the fifth stanza to the wa stanza in verse 41 through 48. And I've titled the wa stanza, Love from God. We learn in this stanza that behind, underneath um, our growth and holiness is the love of God. We would never pursue God if he didn't first pursue us. No one comes unto me unless the Father draws him. Remember those words from Jesus in John 6? Um, he who began a good work. Who began it? He did. will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. So unless the love of God is present, our, our passion for holiness is non-existent. The, the minute God withdraws his love, you lose complete interest in the things of God. God's love continues to draw you Godward. We would be utterly hopeless without the word of God. We would have no interest in him, no desire for spiritual growth. And interestingly, for the first time in this stanza or this, this chapter, the author speaks of God's love being the initiator of our desire for holiness. The reason if you do, if, if, if you want to be holy, if you want to want, it's because God loves you. That's why this takes place in your life. And notice also that here in verse 41, he speaks of salvation for the first time in this psalm. And of course, there is a direct correlation between God's love and his salvation, isn't there? We know that to be true firsthand. These are extremely important subjects, salvation and the love of God, and they appear here for the first time. God can't help but save those he loves. Love requires considering the needs of the ones loved. And no one more than God knows our need. And he loved us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this world to seek and save us who were lost. His love motivates his saving work in your life. If you have embraced Christ you personally know that God loves you. If anyone ever needed proof of the love of God, look to Calvary. Does God love me? Look to Calvary. I can have my sins forgiven because of what happened on Calvary. And Calvary happened because of God's love. God's love is for, is for us. God's love is for those that he sent Christ to save. 
And God's love, if you'll notice, verse 41, is based on his promise. <clears throat> and notice in this same, this same stanza that the love of God results in three things in our life. Verse 44, speaking out for God. So if God's love has taken root in your life, you will know this because you'll have an interest in telling people about Jesus. You'll also have an interest, according to verse 46, uh, to, uh, no, 44 was obedience. You'll have a desire to obey God. Verse 46 is the idea of evangelism. And verse 48 is the idea of worship. So if, if God's love has taken root in your life, you'll have a desire to obey him. You'll have a desire to talk to others about him. And you'll have a desire to worship him, verse 48. So we are called to be ambassadors of God, ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of happiness. You'll never be able to sell Christianity or Christ if you are a Christian Eeyore. If you are the sad sack of the block, who's going to want to join you in your pursuit of Christ? And then that brings us to the last stanza that we covered, the Zion stanza, verses 49 through 56. We know that once um, we are born into the human race, we begin to experience challenges. I can't remember the first challenge in my life, but I'm, I was fairly young. I have scars to prove it. Uh, but we're born to trouble the Bible tells us, as sparks fly upward. Each and every human being, because they are humans, experience pain, suffering, and sorrow at different levels of intensity and experience, but we all experience it. What are you going to do with those things when you face them? Well, this also is used by God to draw you to himself. For those who are under the love of Christ the experience of sorrow or suffering of some kind chases you to Jesus. Jesus uses our sufferings, our times of hardship, to call us to himself. Do you know that, that a knowledge of God, according to this stanza, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his word is the most comforting thing available? Did you know that? and you run to chocolate cake or something else. And the verse here tells us, God tells us, that you know, chocolate cake may be fine, I personally enjoy it, but chocolate cake isn't going to bring the comfort, the long-lasting, deep comfort and joy that comes from a knowledge of God, and I mean a knowledge of God, not just knowing that he exists, but a knowledge of God that includes a knowledge of his Sovereignty, a knowledge of his love, a knowledge of his goodness, a knowledge of his all-knowingness, a knowledge of his kindness will bring to someone who is in times of distress. Chocolate cake can't do that. Chocolate cake makes you go to sleep, maybe. But God will actually comfort you. A knowledge of God is what's offered here for those who need comfort. Remember what Jesus said? He says, are you weary? Are you burdened? What did he say the solution to that was? 
come to me, is what he said. You, 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 are you, do you have some stress in your life? A little anxiety about some things? Need a little comfort? Come to Jesus, Jesus said. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. So, we have covered these stanzas up to verse 56 uh, of Psalm 119. And uh, I want to announce to you that it's time to take a break from Psalm 119. Uh, because we've been at it for a year. And so, uh, you know, don't be discouraged. We're going to, God willing, come back and pick off another one-third of the psalm. But starting next week, I'm going to begin a series in the book of James. And so in the book of James, we're going to see uh, some amazing similarities to Psalm 119, uh, especially when it comes to practical Christian living. Uh, the book of James has, has been uh, one of my um, longtime favorites. I'm certain that if you've read the book of James, it's been special to you as well. Uh, if you have some specific uh, questions about how to live the Christian life, James is a book to go to. James is really the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, James is a book that has been an encouragement to many. It's eminently practical, and I've been wanting to teach and preach it for a long time. Now, to whet your appetite, I'm going to uh, read a few verses from the book of James for your consideration. Now, I want you to think about how the verses that I read you might have an impact on your life. James 1, 2 through 3 ties right into what much of Psalm 119 speaks of. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We're going to talk about that. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, that might be all of us, um, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Do you need some direction, guidance in life? Well, James says there's a source to go to for that. James 1, 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. No, you're not. It says, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So if God is sovereign, how does that work? We'll talk about that. James 1.19, know this my beloved brothers and sisters I might add. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to become angry. James 1.22, we, we're going to pass by this one really quick because all of you, this is, this is meaningless to you. Be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 127, this is still chapter 1, for Pete's sake. Um, religion that is pure, true religion, uh, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. That's true religion. In spite of what we might think. James 2.14 what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now we're getting personal. All right. James 2.17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
muerto for you Spanish speakers. James 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. So if you can just keep your mouth shut, you're going to do a lot better in life, it seems. James 3.5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to preach these things. This is going to be so much fun. <laughs> How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Yeah, we know things about forest fires in this area, don't we? <clears throat> it affected all of us. And it started with a little teeny spark up in the mountains of British Columbia. Canadians. All right. four, five, four, seven. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. you want to conquer some sin? There's strategy here. 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, it's sin. Well, I thought you had to do something wrong to be sin. Well, evidently not. James 5, 13 and 14, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. If anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So we have all sorts of wonderful instruction in the book of James. And I, I have been praying about this for a while and uh, knowing that, that um, Psalm 119 probably is wearing you out a little bit, as it has been me. Um, and I thought I wanted to not get away from the practicality of Psalm 119, so I wanted to go back to the New Testament and where else, where better to go than the book of James um, to learn to live the practical Christian life. And so that's the plan. Lord willing, we'll begin that next week. And uh, I hope you'll be here. Um, we're starting a new kind of preaching calendar year next week. And uh, I'm not going to promise you when we'll get through, James, but we'll get through it, Lord willing. And then we'll come back to the next stanza in Psalm 119. Pick up there. Do a third of the, the middle third of Psalm 119. Go back to the New Testament someplace that I know not where at this point, And then come back and finish Psalm 119 somewhere between five and ten years from now. <laughs> so... That's the plan, as loose as it is, okay? Uh, what a wonderful thing to be in the Word of God together. I so much enjoy it, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I thank God that, that uh, many of you have a measure of interest in this, and it's uh, encouraging to me. Um, this morning, as you see, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, which gives us opportunities for all sorts of things. Um, and, and I want the Holy Spirit to work on your heart as he sees fit at this time. But I do want him to work on that. And uh, so we're going to, we're going to um, um, ask you to come forward. And the elders will serve you up front this morning after we pray for the elements. And I read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians. Um, and uh, But... As you're sitting here in preparation, as you're standing and coming, we're going to be singing a song that'll kind of guide your thoughts. Uh, sing along with us, if you would, and let the Holy Spirit use those words in the song to 
kind of guide your heart. It may be to confession. It may be to a, a refocus on the pursuit of holiness. Whatever it may be, um, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit guide you into that. But um, I'm going to ask the elders who are present to come help me at this time. And I'm going to pray over uh, the elements right now and read the words of institution. And when I'm done, you can make your way forward. If you cannot come forward for some reason, or would rather not come forward, we have a deacon who will be more than happy to bring you the elements right where you sit. Just raise your hand and wave them down, okay? So pray with me if you would. God, now as we come to this time of, of uh, worship where we take uh, time out of our service to focus on what the Lord Jesus commanded us to focus on when we gather, and that is his sacrifice for us, his loving condescension from heaven to earth to live the perfect life and yet be sacrificed as a sinner on a cross shedding his own blood that our sins might be forgiven. And we realize that these elements are not the reality but reflections of the reality. We see that the broken bread that we partake of pictures the broken body of Christ. We see the, the juice in the cup and we realize it pictures the blood of Christ spilt for us, cleansing us from sin. And we know that these are given to us to remind us of our wonderful Savior Jesus who came to earth 2,000 years ago from heaven uh, to save us from our sin, to lead us in the path of happiness and holiness. So God, I ask that your spirit would minister to us now as we come, uh, that, that you would fulfill your promises to, to, to build us up, to nurture our faith. Bless us now, God, as we come forward in faith and receive things, these elements, from your hand through our elders. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and on. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come, remember the Lord's death and all that he has done for you, and rejoice in God's goodness. Come. Come.